Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now, my fairest friend. I would I had some flowers of the spring that might become your time of day, and yours, and yours, that wear upon virgin branches yet your maidenheads growing. O oh, Proserpina, for the flowers now that frighted thou letst fall from Dis's wagon, daffodils that come before the swallow dares and take the winds of March with beauty. Violets dim, but sweeter than the lids of Juno's eyes or Cytherea's breath. Pale primroses that die unmarried ere they can behold bright Phoebus in his strength, a malady most incident to maids. Bold oxlips and the crown imperial, lilies of all kinds, the flower de luce being one. Oh, these I lack to make you garlands of, and my sweet friend to strew him o'er and o'er. These lines are spoken by Perdita in Act 4 of Shakespeare's play, The Winter's Tale. I love this beautiful speech, and although the scene is set in a fantasy bohemia, for me it immediately evokes an English spring, despite Perdita's references to mythical figures. Throughout the scene, Perdita constantly implies that death can be banished by love, and the play's titular winter can ultimately bloom into a flower-filled spring. Now, we have certainly been experiencing the winds of March at the top of the hill where we live, but the special qualities of spring are also beginning to flourish. The world's going green again. The air's filled with birdsong and cuckoo spit clings to the few enterprising plants beginning to show their heads. I'm dusting off my Shakespeare because our tale today is from the county of his birth, Warwickshire, an area with as much excitement in its real history as in its folklore. Get ready for love, perseverance and battles with beasts, including an old foe we met in a previous episode. Sharpen your two-handed sword, keep your book of sonnets close and gather round the fire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. 
There were three ravens sat on a tree. Down a down, hey down a down. They were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Three Ravens podcast. I'm Eleanor Conron and I'm gazing in dread at a gigantic paw print in the mud <laughs> and I'm hoping my co-host Martin Vaux will swing his sword and slay whatever it is that made it. Ching ching, I'm here and ready. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get started, thank you so much to our new followers and friends and everyone who sent us messages this week. Yes, thank you in particular to Lily, Victor C, Visit Durham and At Of Dark and Macabre, but most important of all... Eleanor, Eleanor, we've got our very first Patreon supporter. Oh, that's very exciting news. So thank you so much, Rebecca, for being our first supporter on Patreon. All hail, Rebecca. All hail, Rebecca of Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) We also had a wonderful email from Anthony, a Milton scholar and devil fan who drew our attention to an incredibly charismatic version of Satan in an old English translation of Genesis. Um, We'll put a link to that on our website in case you're interested. And also sent us a wonderful essay about Anglo-Saxon charms. Thank you, Anthony. Also, our Three Ravens card design contest is still going strong with some beautiful entries. If you're an artist of any any skill level please do send us your designs and we'll pick our favorite three at the end of the first series just send your work through to us as a jpeg to three ravens podcast at gmail.com so today is the 3rd of april and we are celebrating saint richard's day Martin, we've just coincidentally encountered St. Richard, haven't we? Yes, we did in person. Um, We happened to pass through Chichester and there is, uh, outside the cathedral there, a statue of St. Richard, although he looks a little bit like Nosferatu. Yes, the sculptor's gone for the sort of elongated, terrifying look for St. Richard there. (laughs) There's actually a little bit of contention about whether today is St. Richard's Day. Tell me more. Well, it does mark the anniversary of his death in 1253, But since 2007, his day has actually been celebrated on the 16th of June, Uh which is also Sussex Day because St. Richard is the patron saint of Sussex. Right. So he's our local saint. And he's also said to be the patron saint of coachmen, referring to his skill at handling horse-drawn wagons. Well, I mean, this is a lot of what you do. You spend an enormous amount of time driving things from place to place to put on various plays and performances and so on and so forth. So I think you should start praying to St. Richard when you're embarking on your quest. Yes, perhaps I could have his icon hanging in the car. That's a good idea, yeah. So after seeing his shrines at Chichester and the statue, of course, I looked into St. Richard a bit further. He lived in the 12th and 13th centuries and he really can be called a scholar and a gentleman. Oh, good. I mean, that's a title that I think we should all aspire to. to Yes. Well, St. Richard was from a noble family and attended university and was incredibly learned. Right. He was one of those people who'd probably read every book in the world, like Chaucer. But there were only like 12 at that point in time. (laughs) It was much easier than it is today, that's for sure. Do you know the last person who said to have done that? No, I don't. Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Oh, really? (laughs) Always bringing it back to the romantics. But yeah, apparently Coleridge was the last person to have read all of the books that were published before he was born. 
Wow, mm. what an incredible achievement. I just think that's impossible for us now, isn't it? Well, it, the, the key thing for Coleridge is, you know, he, he grew up when the printing press was becoming much more popular, you see, so there was only a limited supply of books in English. Yes, <laughs> so it was a much easier task. Mm. I suppose St Richard had not only read books in English, but also in Latin, yeah. Greek, possibly Norman French. Probably. <laughs> so he's quite an interesting one because he had a series of acrimonious fallings out with the king, King Henry III, okay. who disapproved of Richard's appointment as the Bishop of Chichester and tried to oppose it. And all of the radical reforms that Richard supported within the clergy. What kind of radical reforms? So he was really anti-corruption oh. and he was trying to have a crackdown on corrupt clergy and uh, practices that he disapproved of. Whereas the king was like, no, you leave my corrupt clergy alone. Well, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, against the king as well, um, Richard was quite vocal when he disapproved of something the king was trying oh, to do. Oh, I see, okay. So Henry exiled Richard for two years Whoa. and refused to allow anybody to house or feed him in two years. But as he was still the Bishop of Chichester at this point, Richard had to go and try and visit all of his diocese on foot. Oh, that's kind of interesting because when we saw that statue of him, he was looking very thin. He was. <laughs> Fortunately, he was sheltered by his friend, Simon of Taring, who Aww. had a farm um, and he helped him to cultivate the land and was reportedly very good at growing figs. What Simon of Taring was or Richard was? Richard was very oh, good okay. at growing figs. Well done, Richard. He was fairly light on the miracles and his canonisation by Pope Urban IV, just nine years after his death, may have more to do with his militant attitude oh, okay. uh, than the holy wonders he actually performed. But he was famous for causing the dried up brine pits at Droitwich in Worcestershire to flow again, thus saving the salt making trade the town relied upon. Now, I think I've read about this. Every year, the people of Droitwich go back to the brine pits and celebrate St Richard's Day. There. Yes, I think that's right. And I think that's worthy of celebration because yes. what would life be without salt? Well, it would be less tasty. So Maybe thank for... you, St. Richard. Yeah, well done, St. Richard, for that and your figs. Now, are you ready for a cacophony? Yes, of course, naturally, Good, always. because it's time to let the county criers clang us into Warwickshire. Warwickshire's in the West Midlands and it's bordered by Leicestershire to the northeast, Staffordshire to the northwest, Worcestershire and the West Midlands to the west, Northamptonshire to the east and southeast, Gloucestershire to the southwest, and Oxfordshire to the south. Whoa. So it, it is completely surrounded. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> you can see where it's located on our map at threeravenspodcast.com if your geography is as bad as ours. <laughs> <laughs> Martin, what are your associations with Warwickshire? Well, I only really had two in the sense that Warwick Castle, when I was a child, was like heaven. It was the coolest <laughs> place I'd ever been. And I've been there about three times, loved it every time I've gone. It's amazing. Um, and also, I tried to get into the University of Warwick and went up there and visited it and had a lovely time. But they rejected me. <gasps> oh! I applied, I applied for two courses and they didn't even make me an offer. So, cool. Yeah, I know, right? So I've got a bit of a chip on my shoulder about Warwick University, but I'm sure the rest of the county's lovely. <laughs> 
Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear about your uh, your academic rejection, and I hope that one day you will be able to get over it. Yeah, take revenge, maybe? I don't um, know. <laughs> if you're listening from Warwick University, he is joking. <laughs> so Warwickshire was part of Mercia in the 11th century, right. and also played a key part in the English Civil War as the Battle of Edgehill took place That's there. That's famous, that is. Yes. It's also an area known for industry. Coventry was hugely important to the textile trade in the Middle Ages. And these days, the county is key to the car industry. Lots of cars manufactured there. And also a hub for video game studios. Uh, Now, this is stirring things up from my brain. I think Codemasters are based there. And I think Rebellion and also Sumo Digital are based there. So, yeah, it is an amazing place for the development of video games. Yes, it's a there's, I think, a place actually referred to as Silicon Spa. In Ooh. Warwickshire, where a lot of those studios are. That sounds very fancy, but I'm not sure it would be very nice to have a, a spa in Silicon. No, possibly not. <laughs> <laughs> well, my connection to Warwickshire comes through Shakespeare, who was born in Stratford-upon-Avon and partially lived there with his wife and family, though he divided his time between working in the theatre in London yes, and yes. travelling back to Stratford. The writer George Eliot was also born in Warwickshire, Martin, are any of Eliot's works actually inspired by the place she was born? Well, definitely. I mean, she's famous in a way for writing novels about industrialisation and about processes changing from kind of pastoral Mm. into this new era and time. So, you know, she's known for Middlemarch, she's known for Mill on the Floss. But her novel Adam Bede, which is her first book, is very much about her own childhood and the people that she knew growing up. Uh, And then you've also got books like Silas Marner, which starts in the city and moves out to become a bit more bucolic and then then kind of returns uh, later on. I mean, she's an amazing writer, isn't she? Yes, love Adam Bede. I only read that this year for the first time and it's fantastic. (laughs) Well, much of Western Warwickshire used to be covered by the ancient Forest of Arden. Ah, Now that's from Shakespeare, that is. Yes, but it was a real place which has sadly been largely deforested now, although I think in recent times there have been some rewilding projects and some attempts to bring back the forest. Right. And Thorkel of Arden, who was connected to the ruling family of Mercia, so linked to our old friend Penda. Hey, Penda! Um, was one of the few English landowners who managed to cling on after the conquest and actually retain the lands that belonged to him. Sure. After all your horrible French ancestors came riding their <laughs> ponies over. Lovely Normans. Sorry, lovely, lovely, lovely Normans. Normans. Yeah. <laughs> and Shakespeare's mother, Mary Arden, was a direct descendant of Thorkel of Arden. Oh, that's really interesting. Yes. So he's he's connected to the forest through and the area through his family line. And Shakespeare uses forest settings in many of his plays as places of chaos and of transformation. Yeah, classic fairy tale stuff, isn't it? Absolutely. Go into the woods, change, come out again a different person. Yes. And there you may meet wild men, fairies, moving trees and yourself. Yeah, of course. I mean, I count on it every time I go to the woods. (laughs) Most interestingly of all. (laughs) 
As You Like It, um, one of his plays, has a broadly French setting in the Ardennes region um, of present-day France. But the forest is sort of somewhere between an English wood and a fantasy realm where lions prowl and snakes slither. I mean, Shakespeare's geography, it's probably worth saying, is worse maybe than worse ours? than ours. Yeah. Definitely worse than ours. <laughs> Shakespeare's geography is not one of his strong things. No. I mean, he has other qualities. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, won't be remembered for being able to tell you the way. No. <laughs> but it's easy to imagine that audiences of the time would have connected the forest in that play to the Forest of Arden that they knew. Right, that makes sense, yep. The county's coat of arms features a bear and a ragged star. Ooh, cool. And the motto, non sans droit, which means not without right. Ah, you see, I use this motto very frequently when I eat the final biscuit in our household biscuit tin. What he doesn't realise is that biscuits are counted as fish royal and are thus the province of me, the king. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you could have a great coat of arms with sort of custard cream rompant. Well, that you? would be great. I think we should get one made. Crossed bourbons. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody wants to design us a biscuit-themed coat of arms, we'd be incredibly grateful. <laughs> yeah, and we'd be happy to share it with other people as well, like any good biscuit consumer. Yes, honour among biscuitiers. Yeah, quite. So the non sans motto was also the motto which Shakespeare had applied to the coat of arms his father tried to get for 20 years. Yeah, now this is one of the things that preoccupied Shakespeare in his latter days, wasn't it? To try and sort of seek some authenticity to his family line. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there was quite a rise of that in the period of people who were essentially commoners trying to get coats of arms. And they were quite often binned out by uh, the equivalent of the Royal College of Arms at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing today with custom number plates, basically. Yeah, I think so. It's a little bit like that. It's certainly a, a vanity thing, yeah, <laughs> being able sure. to put your coat of arms on the side of your house. There's actually, and, and people at the time mocked him for it. Yeah. There's a great bit in um, the play Every Man Out of His Humour, which is by Shakespeare's contemporary Ben Jonson, famous for The Alchemist and Volpone. And in Every Man Out of His Humour, there's a character called Soliardo who is a bumpkin who's up from the country and he wants to get a coat of arms. And he's being mocked by the other characters who suggest that he has the motto, not without mustard on it, <laughs> oh which some people have read as a mockery of Shakespeare, Ooh, especially slam. because um, the coat of arms Shakespeare went for had a, a mustardy gold background. Oh, did it? Oh yeah. my goodness, that's um, a so really Douglas great dig. Slamming Shakespeare, but also any person attempting to transcend their class sure, yeah, okay. and better themselves. Yeah, they um, the other playwrights, especially the ones who'd been to university because William Shakespeare hadn't, uh, were quite fond of ribbing him for it. Oh, it's the same in the 18th century and 19th century. Like The poets and writers who went to university always had a bit of a thing about the upstarts who, who hadn't. I suppose if you've paid loads of money and fees and spent lots of time studying, yeah, you feel a little bit resentful of people who've managed to make it without. Often had to spend all that time pretending you wanted to train to be a priest. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Which most of them didn't really want at all. No! <laughs> Now, there's an abundance of interesting places to visit in Warwickshire. There's Warwick Castle, which yeah. Martin mentioned, a stunning medieval castle, which I found out is home to the world's most powerful catapult. Ooh. Did you have a chance to fire that when you visited? No, they didn't let me. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> and it, it's changed hands many times in England's various historical conflicts. Well, I can't understand why. No, 
I want the world's most powerful catapult. No, I want the world's most powerful catapult. <laughs> There's also Sharkett Park, where a young Shakespeare went poaching. There's the lovely Kenilworth Castle. Have Ooh. you visited there? I know, I've heard of it, but I've never been. Oh, it looks wonderful. I've never been either, but it was transformed, I know, into a palace mm-hmm. in the Renaissance by Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. Oh, OK, yeah, yeah. In a sort of last-ditch attempt to get Elizabeth I to marry him. And how did that work out? It did not work out. Yeah, no, famously, the Virgin <laughs> yes, Queen. the Virgin like... Queen, not Mrs Earl of Leicester. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's a lovely castle, Robert, but no. Yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> I've told you once. Thanks, I've told no you a thanks. thousand times. Stop, stop doing fancy houses. I believe he died there, actually, in misery. Oh. Hmm. So one of the fa- most famous historical occurrences in Warwickshire was the 1642 Battle of Edge Hill. Yeah. This was a pitched battle, so that means both sides agreed that they would have this fight, synchronised watches, and Ooh. all turned up lads, lads, ready lads. to yeah. <laughs> exactly bash the hell out of each other. But although the battle was bloody, neither side won a conclusive victory. Okay. And I read that it's generally acknowledged that a lack of cavalry discipline prevented the royalists from winning. Mm. Charles I really should have trained his horses better. I mean, to be honest, on the scale of things that Charles I could have done better, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a long list <laughs> a before training horses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, divine right of kings. How's that working out for you? Yeah, well, mm. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh. poor old Charles I. Um, in fact, actually, um, he might have benefited from this week's health and well-being section. Yes, because I've discovered a rather intense cure for a headache, which originates from Warwickshire. And I suppose he had a rather intense headache. That's very good news because I frequently get headaches. So, Eleanor, what is the solution you have for me? How are we going to solve my various brain aches? Perfect. All we need to do is dry and powder Uh the moss growing on a dead man's skull. Excuse me? Yep, so when you've dried (laughs) and powdered the moss growing on a dead man's skull, Uh you take it as snuff. So you inhale it up your up your schnoz. Mm-hmm. And that should get rid of your headache. I mean, to be honest, I, I think I'd probably just rather have the headache. Well, it's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> now, in terms of folktales, there are loads. Right. Everyone's probably heard of Lady Godiva of Coventry and her slightly chilly and uncomfortable horse ride. Yes, very famous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Naked horse ride through the town. Yes, in an attempt to stop tax. Do you mm. think that would work today? No, I think you'd get lots of people coming to watch (laughs) (laughs) well famously Lady Godiva was only watched by one man Keeping Tom Mm -hmm. but some stories say that he was then blinded for having seen what he saw so let that be a lesson to all who show up to watch Keeping Tom's (laughs) boo legend also suggests that St George was actually born in Coventry but um, that is English propaganda because I think George was of Greek descent. <laughs> he was indeed. It's not long yes. until St George's Day, actually. 20, yes, that's true. The 23rd month. of April. God for Harry England and St George. <laughs> <laughs> now, the infamous highwayman Dick Turpin was also believed to have stashed some of his loot in Harwood's house farm. And his ghost has been seen in Warwickshire too, riding between Nuneaton and Hinckley. Although you can't really claim Dick Turpin in that every county tries to claim Dick Turpin up that corridor. There's that road that he <laughs> robbed people on. And they're all like, ah, oh, well, this is Dick Turpin country. Yeah. Well, only for the sort of 20 minutes that he robbed someone for, and then he pegged it to the next place. What can I say? His horse was clearly better trained than Charles I. <laughs> 
So football fans among you will be pleased to hear that the game has its origins in Atherston, uh-huh. where a game of medieval football is still played on Shrove Tuesday every year. When you say medieval football, does that mean people bring swords? Uh, I don't think they bring swords, but I think the rules are much more relaxed than modern football. Okay. (laughs) Well, actually, historically, the game was played with a bag of gold instead of a ball. Crumbs. Mm, I think I'd be much more interested in football if that was still the case. I mean, you'd need to get a really serious boot in order to actually kick that, because, you know... You would, wouldn't you? The ball. Ow. I mean... You know, just stubbing my toe, toe. On, the, on the sort of bathroom corner, you know, in our bathroom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that hurts. Uh, gold would be worse. Wow. Yeah. Look, I suppose there's, there's some sort of metaphor here about footballers' salaries Oh, today. yeah, maybe. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, all I was saying about the swords is maybe that would get me to tune in to watch some football. <laughs> there's some tips for the, the organisers of the future Atherston ball game. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we love all things Arthurian here at Three Ravens. Yep. So I was delighted to discover that the Holy Grail was actually found in rugby in 1995. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you Sorry. laughing? It's true. <laughs> okay. All right. Where is it now? Um, I think it's now in a bank vault, actually. It was discovered in somebody's attic uh-huh. in rugby. Right. And it's actually a very small, very beautiful green onyx chalice. Cool, that sounds nice. Um, which a historian managed to trace to this attic in rugby. And it's now been locked away for safety. Well, that's truly tremendous news. I feel like we need to investigate more about this actual real, for realsies, definitely real holy grail that was found in rugby in 1995. Yes. Um, watch the space and uh, we'll do some digging into that one. <laughs> Warwickshire also has its own phantom cat legend too, uh, the Beast of Barford. Oh, nice. Yes, which could probably give the Beast of Bobman a run for its money. Well, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I, these counties should arrange. A sort of mythical cat death match. Well, or at least a race. <laughs> yes, which would you back? Beast of Barford or Beast of Bodmin? I have to say Beast of Bodmin because that's sort of down my neck of the woods. I was born down in the mm. southwest. So, yeah, the Beast of Bodmin Moor's got, you know, I'm putting my money I'm on putting that. Putting your money on that one. Lovely. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> Out in the Warwickshire countryside, there was once a hill figure called the Red Horse of Tyso. Or actually, rather, several Red Horses of Tyso because the figure was recut several times over the centuries in slightly different places. Uh, the original was likely Anglo-Saxon but um, they kept doing it I think into the 19th century but the last one's been covered over now but I I quite like to think about those those horses sleeping in the earth of the hills. Oh that's very sweet Mm. yeah. Not visible anymore sadly No but you can imagine them waking up one day and going for a little gallop. Yes Giving the Beast of Bodmin a run, perhaps. <laughs> Everyone's legging it through Warwickshire. Dick yeah. Turpin, the Beast of Bodmin. <laughs> well, still visible today are the wonderful Rollwright Stones yes. on the Warwickshire and Oxfordshire border. Mm-hmm. So the Rollwright Stones are a complex of Neolithic and Bronze Age monuments with very evocative names. There's a grouping called the Kingsmen and another one called the Whispering Knights. Yep, yep. See, now... I grew up a little bit around these parts. Spent a lot of time at the Rollwright Stones. Did you? I did indeed. Did you ever yep. hear any whispers from the Whispering Night? Uh, well, it's very windy up there, actually. So it's mm. it's got a beautiful view. Um, so, yeah, you definitely do hear whispering. <laughs> but you've also got the witch 
who was transformed into a silver birch tree and she is off in the woods somewhere so you yes. can go searching for her yeah that is that that piece of folklore associated with it so in the 1610 version it's actually mother shipton remember Ooh, her yeah from, okay uh, oh, she gets around as well yeah so she was the one who accosted a king riding with his army and turned him into stone there's and, a rhyme, right? Uh, yeah, William Camden's uh, text is all in rhyme. Um, and the rhyme goes, Mother Shipton uh, says to the king, As long, Compton, thou canst not see, King of England, thou shalt not be. Rise up, stick, and stand still, stone, For King of England, thou shalt be none. Thou and thy men, whore stones shall be, And I myself. An elder tree. Oh, imagine just coming up with that on the spot. You're being chased by like a murderous crew. You turn around and drop some bars. You're like, well done, Mother Shipton. Well, it is Shakespeare country. There must be something in the water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, this legend carries on that just before turning herself into the elder tree or the silver birch that, yep. that you remembered, she saw three of the king's knights whispering together and turned them into the separate group, the Whispering Knights Stones. Mm-hmm. And I guess she might have thought better of becoming a tree because Mother Shipton carried on to have a great career of prophecy and witchcraft. Yeah, she as soon as she turned herself into a tree, turned herself back out of being a tree. And, and then ran off, off to give some prophecies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Today's story is about a legendary knight and his quest for love while tangling with some fearsome foes. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since the time that God was born and Christendom was established, many adventures have taken place, not all of which are known about yet. Well, when these adventures are recounted, we should learn from them, so that we become wise ourselves and leave ignorance behind. Closer to that time than we are now, there was once an English earl who controlled Warwick. He was rich in gold and silver, but also in friendship. He especially loved horses and often made gifts of fine stallions to his closest friends. He was generous with rewards and well known as a fair and just ruler. Now this earl had a daughter and she was as fair as a flower in a meadow. Her eyes were the celestial blue of a summer sky and her hair was red gold like the sunset on a field of corn. Besides being exceedingly attractive, she was very clever and had studied with the finest tutors her father's money could buy. She was expert in astronomy, anatomy and arithmetic. 
Many men from many lands travelled to Warwick to win her hand in marriage, but none were successful. She turned every last one down. Her name was Felice, and she came to be called Felice the Beautiful, for her good looks surpassed those of all the other local maidens. Unfortunately, her great advantages in life had also given her a great and terrible pride. Nobody who came to woo her was ever good enough for her, not learned enough, not handsome enough, not rich enough, or having accomplished no great deeds. For Lady Felice had read all the romances in French and English and Latin, of course, and she prized a hero above all else. Now, the Earl of Warwick had a steward named Segwit, who was his oldest friend. In their youth they'd fought many battles together and ridden across many miles of country. But their exploits must sleep until another tale is told, for my story is about Segwit's son. A finer young man could not have been found anywhere. He was kind and strong and handsome and everybody loved him. He was a good swordsman, but he was very capable on horseback, which drew him to the Earl's attention for his excellent riding. The Earl asked this young man to be his cupbearer, and he gladly accepted. At Whitsuntide it was the Earl's habit to hold a huge feast for all the nobles. The long tables groaned with civet of hare, gilded sugar plums, and peacocks stuffed with oysters. The knights sat in the great hall, and the ladies were in another chamber. The earl called to the steward's son, whose name was Guy, and instructed him to carry a fine goblet of wine to his daughter in the other room. Well, the moment Guy saw her in her silk gown with her golden hair net, his heart flew towards her like a swallow flying south. The love welling up inside him could not be measured. It seemed to him to be larger than the limit of the world. He did his best to please her, but his hands were trembling and his words were falling over themselves and once he spilled the wine on the floor despite his normally steady hands. The other ladies in the chamber were having a good look at Guy and sent plenty of amorous glances in his direction, but he had no eyes for any of them, for Felice the Beautiful had his heart. After the feast, Guy shut himself up in his chambers in total misery. He closed his shutters and languished in darkness without lighting a single candle. None of his usual activities held any pleasure for him. There was only one star in the heavens for him now, the Lady Felice. Eventually, he resolved to go and speak to her, even if it was the last thing he did. So off he went to Lady Felice's garden where she was tending her physic plants, and he proposed to her immediately, just like that. Far from being pleased, Felice was furious. How dare you, she said. You, the son of a mere steward. When I tell my father about this, he'll have you drawn and quartered. Get out of my sight at once, or you'll be dead before the next cock crow. Guy was so overwhelmed with sorrow at this rejection that he shut himself away again. He wouldn't eat, and he couldn't sleep, and his father and friends were very worried about him. Eventually, after weeks of growing thin and pale, he decided there was no point in living at all without Felice's love, so he returned to her garden. Lady Felice, said Guy, you told me that if you saw me again, you'd have me executed. I'm here to say that you must go ahead, since life without your love is no life to me at all. 
Then he threw himself on the ground in front of her and wept so hard he watered the sun-baked earth. It was hard for Felice not to be a little flattered that this handsome young man would rather die than live without her. She began to feel a bit sorry for him, but she tried to explain, reasonably this time, that because she'd previously rejected knights and earls, she could hardly accept a person like him with no title or good name. If she were to do so, her honour would be no better than mud. Of course, if he were a knight and had proved himself, then it would be easier for her to consider his proposal. Well, Guy leapt up, his tears drying as fast as the hope was budding within him. He knew the Earl of Warwick favoured him, so the very next day he went along to ask the Earl to make him into a knight, and vowed that he would serve him for as long as he lived. The Earl had no objection, for he liked Guy. And soon after, in a great ceremony of purple silk and pearl garlands, Guy became a knight. The Earl presented him with a special gift, a great two-handed sword, which he'd once fought with himself. Look, said Guy to Felice the Beautiful, after the feast which had been held in his honour, I'm a knight! Now, do as you promised! Promised what? said Felice. You may be a knight in name, you've neither jousted or fought with other good warriors. That two-handed sword of yours has never tasted blood or sweat from your grip. How can I give my love to an unproved knight? This was not great news for Guy. He did his best to joust with his new knightly fellows, but they were friendly matches and no real proof of glory. Felice remained aloof, and despite his father's pride and the many expressions of interest Guy received from the other ladies at the Earl's court, he was not satisfied. Now it came to pass that on Dunsmore Heath, a ferocious beast was on the rampage. Sparks flew from its galloping hooves, its eyes were hot coals, it breathed flame, and it mashed its victims into paste with its huge blunt teeth. It was the dread dun cow, and it roamed the heath in search of prey, destroying farmed land and brutalising any person it met. Like so many monsters, the dun cow had once been kind, with a shining white hide and gilded horns. She was big as a house, with eighteen udders, but despite her great size, she'd once befriended the people of Shropshire and freely given a pail of milk to all who needed it. However, a local witch tricked the cow by milking her into a sieve. The sieve could never be filled, and the dun cow's milk ran dry. This made her so angry that she ran from Shropshire into Warwickshire, destroying everything her giant hooves touched. The earl wanted to raise an army against the cow, but the newly knighted Sir Guy stepped forward and said that he alone would go against the monster. Lady Felice wanted a brave deed performed, and this could be it. The Earl was reluctant, but he eventually agreed. The dun cow led Guy on a madcap chase around the county, and even his masterful horsemanship scarcely allowed him to keep up with her. But he wounded her at Mickleton and slowed her down, then tracked the drips of her blood back to Dunsmore Heath, where he cornered her and killed her. In death... The dun cow's face was so sad and peaceful that Guy felt a stab of remorse. 
A triumphant parade was held in Guy's honour, and all in Warwick celebrated his bravery. All except Felice. When he presented her with one of the dun cow's curling horns, she put it aside disdainfully and told him that one solo deed was not enough to make a hero. At that, Guy went into a kind of frenzy. If he ever heard of anyone being terrorised by a beast, he rode off to dispatch it. He became known the length and breadth of Warwickshire as a monster killer. His fame and renown grew. The few remaining local monsters tacitly agreed to slink off and try their luck elsewhere. I heard of a wyvern who's still skulking in a cave below Gloucester to this day worrying about Guy of Warwick. He slew the boar of Birmingham and the dragon of Dracut in a furious, fiery battle which took off Guy's eyebrows and the dragon's head. He gave Felice a dragon's tooth set with a ruby on a golden chain, but she shut it away in her jewel casket and remarked that people had been slaying dragons since before the time of Brutus, and it was no very special thing. Guy began to despair that she would ever love him, and so he started to accept challenges further away from home in his desperate attempt to impress Felice the Beautiful. It came to pass that King Anlaf of Denmark had been eyeing up England for many years, and he thought he would invade it. He descended with his army to seize it by force. King Athelstan of England, understandably piqued, mustered a huge force of dukes, earls, barons and wealthy lords at Winchester, and all the priests and bishops assembled too to pray against the invasion. But Anlaf of Denmark had a secret weapon. He'd brought with him a giant called Colbrand, immensely strong and merciless, more feared in battle than a hundred knights. Unless Athelstan agreed to pay tribute to Denmark every year, Colbrand would destroy England. That is, unless an English warrior could defeat him in single combat. Well... Guy knew that this was the challenge meant to make his name, and he rode to Winchester at once. They faced each other down, Guy and Colbrand, and at first sight they seemed hopelessly outmatched. Colbrand had a huge amount of arms and armour with him all piled onto a cart. He was thirteen feet tall, and his battle-axe had gruesome spikes protruding from it that would bite into steel like a knife sliding through butter. The battle lasted for hours, with neither tiring. Several times Guy thought he nearly had Colbrand, except for that he couldn't reach the giant's head. His two-handed sword was long, but he still couldn't reach higher than the giant's shoulder. Dancing around Colbrand, Guy moved in circles as quickly as he could, bewildering the heavy giant. As the sun set on the battle, Guy was able to get behind Colbrand and into his cart of spare weapons. Putting all his strength into lifting it, he stole one of the giant's axes. It was much longer than Guy's sword, and with the axe he was able to reach up and give Colbrand such a massive blow on the back of his neck that his head fell off. With the last of the day's light, Guy thought he saw a look of lingering sorrow in the giant's dead eyes. The Danes were mortified that their champion was dead, and King Anlaf and his men made their way in great sadness back to their ships and sailed home. King Athelstan was grateful enough to reward Guy with fine lands, and Guy of Warwick's fame spread throughout England. 
By now he was receiving all kinds of proposals of marriage and invitations to the best baronies in the land. But Guy had loyalty to none other than his first friend, the Earl of Warwick, and eyes for no woman but Felice. Surely now I've done everything you wanted, said Guy, when he gave her the giant Colbrand's girdle. Felice could see that he truly was the best and bravest of all knights, and she finally relented. They were married, and Felice the Beautiful was smugly happy in the knowledge that she had the prize all England coveted for her own. The wedding feast lasted fourteen days and nights, with minstrels singing beautifully and gifts for all the townsfolk from Sir Guy of Warwick and his self-satisfied bride. But even amid all this celebration, and even after their bodies met under the bedsheets, Guy was not perfectly happy. Even as he looked at Felice with her red-gold hair clothing her in light, he could not stop thinking about the creatures he had slain. Over the ensuing weeks, a single-minded conviction took hold of Guy. He had to make amends. He told Felice that he was going to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Take my two-handed sword, he said. Keep it safe for my son. Felice was incandescent with rage. Her idea of life as the wife of the celebrated Guy of Warwick did not include a husband who was absent. She tried every tactic she could think of to change his mind. One moment screaming, the next crying, then smothering Guy with kisses, then insulting him. Guy resisted all these manoeuvres and prepared to depart for Jerusalem. When it came to parting, Felice was sorrowful, regretting her hasty words. She gave him a golden ring with a secret inscription inside to remember her by, and Guy promised to return to her. With that he set off, speaking to nobody and travelling incognito so that nobody could ask him to slay anything. On his way to Jerusalem he visited many other holy places where saints were honoured, as many as he could, for seven long years. In Guy's absence, Felice became very charitable, building many abbeys and caring for the poor. She never laughed again, but she had a beautiful son who grew strong and courageous in his father's image. Guy did eventually return to England, but by that time he was tired and ill, and his adventuring days were over. He made it almost as far as Warwick, to a place called Gibcliffe, and there he rested in the cave of a hermit. While he was there, he had a dream that St. Michael came to him, wearing his feathered armour and holding a two-handed sword which looked much like Guy's own. He told Guy that he had only eight days left to live. Guy was grateful to God's friend for the warning and sent the hermit to Felice with the gold lover's ring she'd given him. When the hermit presented Felice with the ring, she was glad and sad at the same time. She rode to Gibcliffe, as fast as she could with her young son, and arrived only just in time. Guy was beyond words by this point, but he kissed her in farewell and put his hand on his son's head in blessing, and then he died. When his soul had departed, it turned into a white dove and flew up to heaven on the shoulder of St. Michael, for Guy had atoned for all his years of violence and Felice regretted that she kept urging him on to further deeds and had so foregone many years of happiness which might have been. 
Guy's fame endures and his tale is still told. And now it belongs to you. So, Martin, what are your feelings about Guy of Warwick? Well, what a guy. Of Warwick. Of Warwick, but also what a guy compared to other guys. You know, I've met many guys in my time. I've never met a guy like Guy of Warwick. <laughs> he was a pretty, pretty all-rounder good guy. He was. And also, <laughs> I think, maybe made some mistakes with the person that he fell in love with. Well, I guess you can't choose who you fell in love with. And, and Guy is a real example of that. Yeah, true <laughs> enough. Yep. There are lots of different versions of the Guy of Warwick story, but it originates with the 12th century Anglo-Norman romance, Guy de Warwick, in which our hero has many epic adventures spanning many continents. I think that's super cool. He's a kind of superhero of his time. Yeah, he is the multiverse of Guy of Warwick. <laughs> <laughs> but at the heart of his story is this idea of proving yourself, which mm. features in a lot of medieval romances. It's not enough to just be a knight by title. You must also complete various heroic deeds to be a real knight, which is part of the, the complex code of chivalry, isn't and it? That's one of the weirdest things about chivalry is it's an idea that's so pervasive in English culture and mm -hmm. a lot of French culture as well. But it's also a period of time that most historians say didn't really exist. Mm. So it was made up later. And then there's this kind of retroactive nostalgia for this idea of what you could be if you were an honourable man, an honourable knight, or even just a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> of Warwick. Yeah. <laughs> but we can see chivalry and this sort of notion of completing quests at play in loads of medieval texts. Mm. There's the Gawain and the Green Knight, where Gawain is chivalric but not necessarily for the reasons we might think no and also not necessarily what we would call a good guy by today's measure no yeah, he does naughty things yeah he kind of redeems himself and i think christianity is embedded in that the idea of you should do what certain women tell you to do or ask you to do, mm. but then other women you can't trust. But so, doesn't he, you know, he, he sleeps with his host's wife, he doesn't sure he? Does, but yeah. because it would be not chivalric to refuse a lady. That's it. So it's part of your duty to do what a woman tells you to do, unless she's an evil woman. But you wouldn't necessarily know she's an evil woman in advance. No. <laughs> so a lot of the tales are quite tangled in that respect. Yeah, and the catalyst for the knight's quest is often a beautiful woman, isn't it? Yeah. With um, Guy of Warwick, it's obviously Felice saying, well, you're not good enough for me. Right. But quite often it's to impress a woman or because you're too distracted by a woman. So yes. in, well, of um, course, Lancelot famously, you know, yes. Guinevere, and then obviously uh, you've got Arthur as well and his various lady troubles, women oh, troubles. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And in the, the slightly lesser known um, romance by Chrétien de Troyes, Eric and Enid. Never of it. Um, it's it's one of the five romances that Chrétien de Troyes wrote. Um, it's quite a lovely one, though. So at the beginning of that, rumours have spread through all the nights that Eric has been neglecting his nightly duties uh -huh. because he's too preoccupied with his love for Enid. Oh, I see. So he decides to prove himself by going on a crest, but Chrétien de Troyes subverts the trope of the passive lady in the tower because Eric... Um, takes Enid with him oh, on his adventures nice. and she actually ends up saving his life oh, and... see that feels like an 80s movie you know like a double team like let's work together and solve yeah, this problem yeah it's, it's pretty great I mean 
she's she's an outspoken person Enid and it's actually her speaking up that manages to save Eric's life oh, from awesome. danger which oh, is quite an interesting I'm sad that I'd never heard of this before it sounds great idea for a lady character in that period when uh, so often they're you know silent and beautiful well yeah it stands in contrast to Lady Felice who's like no just no, no. oh you've done another amazing thing uh, oh no. anyone can slay a dragon yeah yeah <laughs> the demanding princess character of her reminds me of one of my favourite grim fairy tales the swine herd do you know yes, that one yes 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 you'd say the spoiled princess makes these increasingly ridiculous demands but ultimately is left disappointed by the frustrated prince who's fed up I, I with her I wonder if that was what was going to happen where a guy would just go I've had enough I've had enough of you no <laughs> but I like the idea that her urging has kind of got him to where she wants him mm. but that pushes them apart because yeah, of all of the violent acts he's had to had to commit now I think that idea of um, seeking salvation and forgiveness for the crimes I felt very sad for the dun cow and also uh, for your giant you you uh, gave them these dying moments <laughs> where they had sad looks in their eyes well oh, no. the awful dun cow inspired me so much after last week's discussion that I had to make her feature <laughs> and, although that is in the original um, legend of Guy Warwick he does battle the dun cow um, and and there's a supposed Duncow rib at Warwick Castle. Yes. Although I think they're now claiming it's a narwhal tusk. But Boom. They, they would say that, wouldn't they? Boom to I mean, them, yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you had proof of a giant rampaging cow's existence, I think you would pretend it was a narwhal tusk. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> and also it's the kind of thing that would attract like the Jurassic Park guys, you know, and they'd be mm. looking to clone and revive. Ooh, uh, no, thank you. Welcome to Duncow Park. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think we're all right. <laughs> Even if it was a slightly sympathetic figure in this story, I don't trust him. <laughs> Clever girl. <laughs> to bring this very circuitously back to Shakespeare, <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading that Guy of Warwick was included in a version of the Nine Worthies. What's that? Um, so the Nine Worthies were nine historical figures of distinction who were meant to embody the ideals of Shakespeare. Okay. So Shakespeare includes a shockingly bad pageant of the nine worthies in his play Love's Labour's Lost, which is earnestly performed by the local schoolmaster right, and the okay. clergyman and, and heartily mocked by all the noble I see, characters. I see. Nice. Um, Guy doesn't feature in the play, sadly. I think they, they only get as far as Judas Maccabeus. And, and... Then they just <laughs> them off stage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Guy's deeds, though, were celebrated through ballads and pageants right through history. And even after World War II, he actually had a resurgence in popularity in patriotic local events. Oh, that's so cool. There's a Guy of Warwick show at Warwick Castle now. No yeah. way! Yeah, and it's got jousting and fireworks and a fire-breathing dragon oh, that's projected man. on the castle walls that he fights with. <laughs> well, at least being such a great guy has had Guy remembered. In Warwick. <laughs> you can also actually stay the night at the castle, Ooh. I discovered. Ooh. And it is well worth it as there are so many amazing places to visit in the area. If you've had any Warwickshire adventures, do please tag us in your pictures on Instagram. We love seeing what our listeners have been up to. Definitely, definitely. So, Martin, where will we be wandering to next week? Oh, uh, we're going to Hampshire next Ooh. week and we've got a ghost. 
Oh, fantastic. Spooky, spooky times. Excellent. We'll have to light all the candles and close all the curtains, ready yeah. for a bit of ooky spooky ghost story. <laughs> Lovely. In the meanwhile, if you would like bonus content, including exclusive episodes, our monthly Three Ravens newsletter, which a new one has just come uh -huh. out, which has a rundown of the month's English folk customs, a magic spell, a tarot spread, text versions of the stories, and all the episodes of the podcast advert free that's on the patreon mm -hmm. and please consider joining it it's just three dollars a month and you can find it by visiting patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast please also consider following us on facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast instagram at three ravens podcast or on twitter via at three ravens pod and also check our website that's three ravenspodcast.com where we host our blog and archive of all past episodes and expanded information of photos about the places that we're talking about and figures that we're talking about and also you can find our online shop there where there's lovely t-shirts and other three ravens merchandise we also love hearing from you so if you'd like to get in touch do please email us at three ravenspodcast at gmail.com Send us your own folk tales. We'll feature them on one of our upcoming listener episodes. Or if you just want to say hello. Or that of course nice. enter our art competition. Yeah, yeah, please, please. <laughs> Until next time then. While our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle until you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to Roy Palmer's The Folklore of Warwickshire, the Cambridge University translation of the 12th century Anglo-Norman romance Guy de Warwick, The Legend of Guy of Warwick by Velma Bourgeois Richmond, and my go-to medicine manual, Graham King's The British Book of Spells and Charms. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad, Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon. Our logo and graphic design work is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written by me, Martin Vaux, and Eleanor Conlon. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.